Welcome, I'm Nicole Burdett with Meritalk. Over the past year and a half, we've seen an accelerated push to achieve digital first government, ensuring employees and citizens have the information they need when and where they need it. A series of technology innovations are supporting this push to ensure better experiences for employees and for citizens and better outcomes for government programs. On today's episode of Meritalking, I'm joined by Jay Wasso, AI and HPC technology strategist at Dell Technologies, and Mark Hamilton, VP of Solutions Architecture and Engineering at NVIDIA. They're ready to discuss how steps towards a digital-first government are helping agencies support flexible work models, better citizen experiences, improved cyber defenses, and more. Jay and Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining us. So Jay, we'll kick off with you. When we think about and we talk about digital first government, we're talking about modern IT enabling the best possible workforce and citizen experiences. So that's a more connected, a more data intensive, a more automated government. What are some of the most important lessons in your opinion that have been learned over the past year and a half that you believe should help guide federal IT leaders as they continue to modernize and implement emerging technology? Um, well, I would say two of the obvious ones are modernizing the tools of the workforce and modernizing the delivery and execution of workloads on the back end. So when it comes to the workforce, that includes making sure that they have not only have laptops and all of the other associated equipment, microphones, webcams, everything needed to be participatory in their job and in their required activities from wherever they are, making sure all of that is up to date, that it is well managed. Dell, of course, we strong PC business and strong in enterprise and government, which really grew a lot last quarter. We had a record earnings last quarter. And a lot of that was driven by business and government PC sales as they were modernizing their, their workforces. So that's been a big one, making sure that we can deliver, even in these supply chain constrained times, that we can deliver complete workforce solutions to people and the ability to provision those rapidly with the right set of software on them and the right security tools on them to keep them working and working securely as well as effectively. On the back end, of course, it's been about modernizing their applications and workflows. So Dell believes strongly in the hybrid multi-cloud future of the world. Implicit in that is that applications need to be developed and run on infrastructure that is designed and developed in a way that allows some flexibility and scalability in those environments that you can put the right workload in the right place. You've got resiliency built in so that you can move those workloads as needed, whether they're virtualized on top of VMware or containerized. And so we've really worked with places to not have their backend applications so tied to specific locations and specific infrastructure, but generalize that using cloud native principles and virtualization technologies so that they have more scalable, flexible, and resilient infrastructure, including even in times where they might be resource-constrained or human-constrained in their data centers. And Mark, how are cloud computing and also AI driving fundamental changes in the data center architecture? That's a great question. And of course, cloud computing and AI are often linked because there's so much AI work being done in the cloud. But they're really two different concepts. In a traditional data center, people have built up silos of compute. You think about it, one server to run your payroll, one server to run your customer relationship management system, 
another set of servers to run your, your enterprise resource planning and manufacturing. And of course, when you use the cloud, it's a shared environment. You don't know which server you're going to use, and you can, in fact, use any one of the servers, depending on what you're going to be assigned. So these so-called cloud-native infrastructures is what every data center in the future would like to adopt. And technologies like Kubernetes is a great example that is one of the key infrastructure software pieces for many cloud-native data centers. The big challenge in a cloud-native data center is that it really is the concept of zero trust, right? No longer, just like in the cloud, right, the server you're using today may have been used by someone else tomorrow, and you may be connected to the same network switch as one of your competitors. And so you can't rely in building a cloud-native infrastructure on having just have it locked up in your data center behind a firewall. Every server, in effect, needs to be secure and not trusting of the others. And that really requires a fundamental redesign of the server architecture. And this is where NVIDIA's DPU technology comes in. A lot of people ask, what is a DPU? Is it just another name for a smart NIC? And a way to think about it is, is a smart NIC was maybe a first generation DPU. And what NVIDIA has added on top of that is two things. One, we've added acceleration, right? Because it doesn't make sense just to take a CPU core and move it from the server to move it into the smart NIC. That is simply, that provides some benefits from moving offloading, but the cost of the core, of the compute core is still the cost. So you wanna be able to accelerate the functions. Wanna be able to accelerate network processing, accelerate different security functions provide AI capabilities in that DPU. And in fact, the number of things you want to do in the DPU are only limited by the number of things that you do in the data center today. And so NVIDIA has built a software development kit that we call DOCA, D-O-C-A. And it stands for Data Center Architecture on a Chip. And so we're basically taking everything that you want to do in the data center from network acceleration to management to security, building up an SDK so that all of the software companies that work on those capabilities in the data center now have a way to move that work into the DPU. So we really think that this is going to be key. The other thing that AI drives is many AI problems to develop AI code is fundamentally a high-performance computing style of problem. Many people have heard of, well, AI is just software that's written by the data, right? But think about it, it's tons of data. All of the data that you have collected as an enterprise over the last decade, how do you put that to work to write the software you're gonna write in the next decade? versus having engineers typing up the software. And that's a supercomputing class problem. Companies like Dell are great at helping traditional supercomputer companies build supercomputers, right? But enterprises don't want to have to learn to build supercomputers. So again, working with Dell on solutions like our DGX SuperPod, which is really a turnkey supercomputer. It's buying the whole supercomputer, in effect, uh, from Dell as a single product. All of the GPUs, all of the servers, all of the networking, all of the management stack integrated at the factory by NVIDIA and then delivered 
by Dell really helps then those enterprises scale up to be ready for the AI workloads that they're going to need to run. And Mark, another, I guess, a follow-up question for you. As government agencies continue flexible work models, we know digital workloads are becoming more complex and that the volume, the velocity, the variety of data that agencies are managing continues to grow. So what should IT leaders be thinking about in terms of data management? As I said in the last question, I think for the last 10 years, IT leaders have thought a lot about is data management has pretty much related to data storage. Dell has, has done a, a wonderful job at delivering and deploying Hadoop and Spark and other data management, data storage solutions across enterprises. But the data analytics that have been done against that have been very limited, right, by first-generation data analytics tools. And that's the promise of, of AI, really being able to put that data to use. There are problems that simply could not be addressed by first-generation data analytics. In two of those, the most active right now that we see, one is natural language processing, right? It's again, governments are filled with paperwork, with documents, and many of those documents have now been stored. And so they've been digitized. But beyond digitization is data analytics didn't understand how to do natural language processing. And now with AI, with a supercomputer class AI solution, you can actually go through and understand natural language and really lead to the development of conversational AI solutions. Today, many agencies are digitized and you can go and fill out the form for a driver's license online, right? Or fill out other forms online, but you can't really interact conversationally. The way you did when, you know, you went to the counter at the government agency or called up the government agency and talked to that frontline worker. Natural language processing, natural language understanding provides the ability to do that. The second thing is, once you have natural language understanding, it takes that data from simply digitized data into knowledge. And that knowledge, that understanding of what's in that language, in that document, in that voice recording, can lead to much more accurate recommender systems. We've all experienced a recommender system, sometimes referred to just by the, the shorthand of RECSIS, if we bought something online and the site is recommended, maybe you would also like to buy this with that site. Why were the cloud computing companies, the big online marketplaces, the early adopters of AI? Well, first of all, the cloud computing companies had that vast amount of compute where they could actually build AI software. Secondly, they had all the data that was digitized because their data in the cloud was born digital. It didn't have to be transcribed from paper. And finally, the problems, the early recommender systems, the cost of making a mistake was very, very low. If I recommend the wrong color socks to buy with my shoes, at worst, the customer returns the socks. If I recommend the wrong movie to watch, the customer turns it off halfway and selects another movie. But now as, as you move recommender systems into government workflows, the decisions are much more important and much more impactful. And so they need to be more accurate. The cost of making a mistake 
in a modern re recommender system is much higher than the early consumer examples. And so you need to move beyond really basic REXIS driven by data analytics and machine learning to really AI-driven recommender systems. And again, in that natural language understanding can feed into the recommender system. Think about that. If you could understand every call center reporting from the last 10 years at a particular agency, and you fed that into a recommender system when a new citizen called in and asked a question for the first time, think how much more accurate that recommender system could be than a simple you know, keyword voice response system. Can I add one little bit to that? Agree with everything Mark said. I just, from the perspective of this, digital workloads are becoming more complex and the volume, velocity, variety of data agencies manage continues to grow. What should IT leaders think about? One point that I always like to make here is that, you know, in the old days, we worried about people stealing physical things. It might even be plans, but they might even be physical plans like a blueprint or something. But we used to worry about the theft of, of physical things. Now, of course, we worry about the theft of IP and increasingly even the raw ingredients for IP data because people can do things and get insights out of that data. So the we have these much richer data analytics techniques up to and including AI, as Mark said, to leverage those techniques you need to leverage more and sometimes more types of data. So it makes sense for these uh, IT leaders to think about if I want to really empower my workforce, I've got to open up the silos that previously existed for good reasons. If you had a, a sales database and a, and a repair database and a marketing database, you didn't need those three different groups seeing each other databases. They were just doing hind casting queries. But now they might be on trying to get insights about the present or future by fusing those data sets to find patterns that you wouldn't have found in a SQL query, but you might find with a deep learning technique. So the data has more value when combined and richer techniques are used on it. You want to open up these internal silos so that you can empower your data scientists to do things they could never have done with the previous generation of data analytics techniques and tools. And at the same time, recognizing the increased internal value of all that data is also increased external value of all that data. So chief data officers and chief security officers have this interesting challenge of increasing the availability of that data and the metadata describing it to internal data scientists and users of that data while realizing it has increasing value to external threats and competitors. And so locking it down from external threat even more carefully while opening it up more internally to facilitate higher level data science internally. And that's an interesting challenge. And it means the security is tied so deeply into AI as we want more and more data to integrate more and more sources of that increasing amount of data. The very value that it gives us is value that it could give to somebody else too. So security becomes paramount now for data like it has been for IP before that and for physical things before that. And Jay, thinking about AI and ML, we know that agencies often have trouble implementing beyond proof of concept projects, so implementing more, more broadly across their enterprise. When they are successful in this area, what are some of the steps they're taking to help get them from kind of pilot to a full implementation? It always starts with understanding the business problem if you're a company or in government agencies, your mission and your mission problem you're trying to solve. So 
more powerful techniques, more powerful tools don't change the fact that you need to know very clearly what is it I'm trying to solve? What outcome am I trying to achieve? And then in some sense, you're working backward from there. When your tools are data science tools and data analytics tools, you should have somebody on your staff or connected to your staff in a services arrangement that speaks your domain or vertical expertise and truly understands your mission problem, but understands data science. So we don't, we're not yet in the era of black box supercomputers. You know, Alexa, I should say that carefully, can turn on my lights and change my thermostat, but can't solve my daily Dell business problems for me. And so you want somebody on the team who understands data science. You know, I used to always say addition is hard, algebra is harder, AI is harder. We need to recognize that these more powerful techniques are a bit more complex. So the successful places have somebody on staff or affiliated with the staff who understands data science and understands the, the mission problem or is in close collaboration with the people who, who are. So you can develop an, a, a capabilities plan. You could call it an IT plan, but you need to think, okay, what is it that we need? Do we need a natural language processing element, a recommendation element, an anomaly detection element? What are the elements within our data science portfolio that might help us address this problem? And then we can say, okay, what is the IT plan we need to offer those capabilities? And so you want a good relationship with vendors like Dell and NVIDIA because they're the best at explaining how their technologies, hardware and software, provide the capabilities that you're trying to use to solve your mission problem. Now, in the era of AI, again, it enables deeper insights about more complex things, and that extends all the way out to the edge. So understanding your problem might now mean not just understanding some back office stuff. How do we improve our payroll systems? How do we improve performance evaluation of all of our staff? But, you know, in, in the government space, it might mean how do we improve the decisions and awareness of people in the battlefield, possibly currently disconnected from central command due to battlefield conditions. And so this means that as you are trying to understand your problem, we're trying to make the warfighter more capable and easier to operate independently. We're trying to make vehicles, if you're Department of Transportation, make vehicles not only able to act independently, but be augmented by being able to communicate with each other and infrastructure that is instrumented as well. You need to develop an IT plan that goes all the way from edge to, to core to cloud. And that's one of the things that we do well at Dell um, is understand what infrastructure is optimal for which place. And sometimes you have a choice. If you're a hospital, do you need the X-ray inferenced at the split second the X-ray is taken? Probably not. It's probably going to take the X-ray tech a little while to go over and get the film. It's probably not a nanosecond delivery of the result. So you could choose to optimize the cost function of uploading all your hospital scans to a cloud versus inferencing at those devices. However, there are advantages in those cases of performance and resiliency for making those inferences at the edge. Should the hospital lose connectivity, there are some decisions that have to be made immediately or next to immediately. The extreme example of that in the real world is autonomous vehicles. You don't want your autonomous vehicles asking a cloud whether to turn or whether to apply the brakes or whether to initiate the airbag. So some things, decisions have to be made where the data is sensed and the decision has to be applied. They could be 100% edged by requirements and battlefield conditions, traffic conditions for civilians, et cetera, 
are often those kind of decisions. Others, it might be a cost optimization function of combining edge, core, and cloud to give you the best overall cost, but with other options within that architecture to give you the maximum resiliency if there's failures somewhere in there. And so getting back to your question here now, the agencies that are successful understand the business problem or the mission problem they're trying to solve. They have some degree of data science associated with the people who understand the mission problem they're trying to solve, who understand the potential and capability of these higher level techniques. They either have some degree of IT expertise that maps to new data science, or they're working with services companies or vendors like Dell and NVIDIA that can explain how these IT capabilities map to those data science capabilities. And then they develop an IT plan that has the right infrastructure and also the right policies for data accessibility for this. And they have to go in with some degree of realism. They probably should tackle, you know, AI is still, it's not new, the ideas are 70 years old, but the application of deep learning in large part, thanks to GPUs and companies like NVIDIA has only been really feasible widespread for seven or eight years. At, or is it 10 now? When did Hinton do? Might, might be nine years now. Um, so really I'd say deep learning revolution was probably launched only about nine years ago and in business just the last two years. So it probably makes sense to develop some confidence with some smaller scale AI kinds of problems before trying to tackle the gross problems of let's collect everything on everything we're doing everywhere and see if we can find any patterns that we miss somewhere along the way. Natural language processing, object classification, some video analytics, recommendation engines and anomaly detection like cyber intrusion detection or if you're in financial services, fraud detection. Those are places that are maturing fast, that there's lots of successes and that pilot projects can potentially lead to successes in, in relatively short order. And the last thing I'll say, because I've spoken too long on this, is they often have trouble because they have trouble getting good data together for it. Their data may exist in multiple places. It may have some zeros in some fields that were fine for database queries, but don't work for training an AI model. So there is often a really grungy data engineering phase before the data science kicks off. And different studies have ranked that from being the majority of the effort to as much as 80% of the effort to get to success in an AI or ML project. I think in the future, that won't be the case. We'll start tagging data more carefully as we store it. We'll start worrying about the curation at the moment of collection instead of after the fact when someone introduces AI, ML into the organization. But you have to remember that a lot of data is spread out. It's messy. It's noisy. It may be error prone. It may have biases in it. And these new powerful techniques require not just lots of data, but lots of good data. Errors removed, biases accounted for, a lot of testing on those features, et cetera. So if you understand the pragmatic issues of how data was stored and that you may have a lot of data engineering ahead and you understand your mission problem and can map that effectively to an IT plan, and then you pick some low hanging fruit at the beginning, you have some, a good chance of being successful and then building on that. I'm sure we could have a whole other conversation on, uh, on getting the data ready. So uh, I like the idea for the future. Um, My hope is that we will start training all of our data collection systems so that we're not always fixing the data after the fact. And by the way, that's on my company to do. I recognize we allow people to store data in lots of ways that were great for yesterday's techniques, but we got to work with NVIDIA and academic researchers and everybody else to figure out how to store data better 
at the point of collection, knowing what it might be used for in the future. So Mark, we're going to switch gears slightly and talk about one of really the, the key enabling technologies going forward, which is 5G. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the opportunities that 5G brings and from your perspective, what's needed to make these opportunities real? Opportunities and challenges. Let me start with the challenge, right? First is that what 5G does is it lets you build out your edge. There'll be more compute done at the edge collectively. It just makes sense that are done in all of the data centers today. But in order to move compute to the edge, the edge is, is the ultimate cloud native environment where you, you have zero trust, right? Not only can you, you know, not trust the network, but you can't trust that someone isn't going to walk away with that computing device, that small box with the sensor in it. And so agencies today are struggling to build things like Kubernetes cloud native infrastructure inside their data center. In moving that from inside one or a few data centers into 10,000 or 10 million IoT endpoints on a 5G network would, would seem like an impossible task for many agencies. And so that's where technologies like NVIDIA Fleet Command. Fleet Command is our control plane product for the edge. It lets you as simply as dragging and dropping on a screen, go through and take a AI workload and predefined in a Kubernetes container and drag and drop it into an edge device connected somehow on your 5G network. So getting that control plane working out natively at the edge with technologies like NVIDIA Fleet Command are one of the challenges. Secondly, you're going to want to do AI at the edge. And for that, you're going to need a consistent platform. Agencies just struggling to implement their first AI projects into production in their data center. They don't want to have to learn a new hardware platform, a new technology for deploying out in, in the edge with, with 5G. So need to look for a consistent platform that scales from the data center to the edge and also up into the cloud and is available into the cloud. Because many times those edge applications connected over 5G will bypass going back into the data center or first go into a cloud as an intermediate step and maybe be have some of that data processing be done in the cloud. The other thing that 5G brings is pick your number, but you know, 100X, 500X, more data throughput. Well, the challenge is that data needs to be processed. It's again, you, you can't bring all of that data all the way back to the edge or all the way back in, into your data center. And of course, today there's processing done at the edge. Every telco has hundreds or thousands of points of presence, those neighborhood sort of brick buildings with, with no windows that all the phone lines are going into, all the edges of all uh, the, the cable networks in the world. But when you walk into those, they're already full. They're full with 4G equipment. And so now if, if you start going 100 times more data through it and you want to add additional services at the edge, there's no way that you can, without acceleration, add 100 times more CPUs. So you can't solve the edge compute problem without some sort of acceleration. And again, th th that's a great place for NVIDIA products. More than that, if you think about 
what are some of the things that are going on at the edge? Now, you certainly have sensors, various sensors that are passive, but what is happening is every piece of machinery in the world is being computerized. The simple case of a car is now an autonomous vehicle, you know, a little delivery robot. Think of, of any sort of machinery, farm equipment. All machinery in the world will be computerized and 5G enables that. But now a 100x you know, increase in 5G capacity coupled with computerization of all the machinery of every mobile and non-mobile edge device out there, it's probably a million X compute challenge to be solved, not a hundred X. And so we'll have to do some of that processing at the edge in acceleration alone. Acceleration can solve that 100 X growth factor and many, many examples of GPU acceleration providing that. But for 1 million X additional compute, the only way to solve that is by the combination of AI plus acceleration. What AI does is in effect, it lets you not compute all of the laws of physics and take guesses. Think about it, an autonomous car isn't computing the physics vector of where the car is gonna be in five seconds and it will be beyond the stop sign. It's using AI to recognize the stop sign in recognizing a way that it has to stop at the stop sign without going through and having to calculate every small piece of the physics of it. Yes, it does use LIDAR or radar or other sensors and compute some of the physics, but augmented with AI. So again, combination of intelligent AI plus compute acceleration, really the only way to solve these million X challenges in compute that 5G will drive. As a final question for this report component, Jay, as agencies continue to deploy hybrid cloud, multi-cloud ecosystems, as they advance their edge and their AI initiatives, and as they roll out 5G, what's needed to modernize security to help keep data and systems secure? Yeah, so I touched on it from a top-down perspective of how the chief data officer and chief security officer need to work together. And, you know, an organization may not have a CDO, maybe the CIO or or some delegate working with the CSO, need to work together to maximize the capability of their workforce while minimizing the risk and threat from the outside. But in terms of this question for security, it's really about how do we, you know, provide secure solutions and products and components within those products. And so, you know, the Dell approach to this is security needs to be baked in from the ground up, and we need to have tools that can monitor for any improper usage that couldn't have been foreseen by baking security into the, to the products, but it's because somebody got access through a policy or a social engineering failure or something like that. And so it really starts with baking it in first, right? We obviously, we work with vendors that do, uh, that develop processors and accelerators that develop NICs, that develop memory, that develop disk drives and so on. We assemble these into solutions that we test for security and we work with many of the manufacturers of those parts to ensure security is baked in. Sometimes something gets through the Spectre incident with microprocessors a few years ago was something that got through at the component level 
And we all worked together rapidly to implement solutions on products made with those components that prevented that vulnerability from being useful while the component makers fix their designs to prevent that very odd and academically interesting <laughs> exploit that Spectre was. So we tried to work with component companies to ensure security is baked into their components. We bake it into our manufacturing process of the products, including throughout the supply chain. That's a, you know, the supply chains became much more visible to people during this pandemic because when you can't get your car for some reason that makes no sense to, and you find out it's because there's a shortage of microprocessors, you might scratch your head a little bit and say, well, what, what, what? I wanted a car, but your car is loaded with microprocessors. There were supply chain issues in the production and the fabrication facilities for microprocessors. You have to make sure that all the way from, from fabs and, and other component makers that you've got secure supply chain policies in place and monitoring in place. You want to implement secure route of trust in your servers so that you can detect any intrusion there. So you're baking it in to how the components are made, the products are assembled from those components and made, how they are shipped to their endpoints all the way from initial manufacturing to the end customer. You have to bake security into all of those processes. And then, of course, that's just hardware and firmware. And now you've got software as well. So you have to actively you know, battle test all of the software components in your system. Even with all of this baking in, it's possible and it happens that there is some failure along the way in a component that like the Spectre example I mentioned, but those are, those are very rare because the companies that make these components and products and solutions of products, they have security mindsets throughout their entire manufacturing process. It's much more often a, a human issue. And I got to that a little bit with the CDO and CSO thing. You want to open up as much of your data to your data scientists as possible while protecting it from external threats. You know, the majority of these security things are still human failure in some way, not system failure. And it could be social engineering, it could be carelessness, it could be things like that. So you want to educate people about security policies. You want to make sure they understand how to use your own data protection tools that you offer as a company to facilitate their capabilities while protecting against risks and stuff. And so that means us making tools, software tools that are as close to bulletproof as possible, that allow people to proceed with their mission or business work without introducing new vulnerabilities accidentally due to unauthorized access or usage or things. And so that comes with making better software tools, tools that are easier to configure and easier to use and harder to misconfigure and misuse. And then working with CSOs and CDOs to make sure they understand and the IT administrators how to use these tools most carefully. So security is one of those things that is, as you know, Mark said, we're increasingly dependent on computers and every single thing we do. There's data all around us all the time. We have to have a multi-level approach to security. And sometimes something will fail in one of those layers. And that's where AI can really come in to help you detect anomalies. Remember, AI doesn't know what a hacker is any more than it knows what a cat is. AI knows patterns in data. We train it to find things that the previous analytics techniques wouldn't have identified. We might phrase it as a recommendation for a new product. We might phrase it as a fraudulent transaction. We might phrase it as a dog instead of a cat in an image, but we're training it on massive amounts of data to find these patterns. And 
you want to make sure that you have proper monitoring tools in place. So even if you've done everything right, you think, everything right, if something happens, you can detect some anomalous behavior that is indicative of a security issue somewhere in the system. So you hope you never have to resort to that. You hope your first principles bake security in to everything you do. And we're always improving the supply chain and manufacturing aspects of security. So you start with hopefully impenetrable products on which you're then gonna layer software and people. And then you hope that you've developed nearly impenetrable software and then you hope you put great policies and training in place. You know, just one quick thing uh, to add there, back to your, your comment about you can't buy a pickup truck even in, in Texas these days because they all have chips on them. In a lot of the, the discussion about the chip shortage has been around, well, you know, COVID disruptions to supply chain. And it's certainly true that COVID has, has disrupted supply chains. But I think in 10 years, when we look back, we'll realize that it wasn't, COVID wasn't the major problem with the reason you can't buy a pickup truck. It is exactly what I talked about is the computerization of machinery. Think of any machinery that you've bought that hasn't had some sort of chip in it. We recently bought a new washer and dryer. It is hard to buy a home appliance now that isn't internet connected, even at the entry level, right? And so think of all the chips that are being shipped today and need to be shipped because of the computerization of machinery of all types. So it is certainly a challenge for the industry because that ramp is huge. You need to solve for a million X ramp, but it's still a hundred X, a thousand X ramp for supply chains in volumes is hard. There was a movie that I enjoyed on Crackle a couple of years ago called The Throwaways. And in the opening sequence, the guy has, he's an expert hacker. He's a white hat hacker. He's wreaking havoc on bad governments around the world, but they finally are on to him and he gets a warning in time to sneak out of his hideout and get on his motorcycle and put on his AI helmet and speak commands to disable all the cars that are chasing him. And he activates like the brakes on some of these cars by, you know, the systems that he's built in place to communicate the cars that catch them are something like 1960s Russian Jeeps that have no chips in them at all. And as Mark was saying, it's just, it's hard to buy a car that's not connected and chipped in some way. And I remember watching that movie and thinking, I wonder if one day there'll be a market for completely analog cars again. Jay and Mark, thank you again. In a short conversation, we've touched on a series of what I think are some of the most exciting areas of innovation and opportunity for government IT. We appreciate your perspectives and we look forward to having you both back again soon. To everyone listening, thank you. And please take a moment to subscribe to Meritalking for more great content from the leaders working to improve the outcomes of government IT. Thank you.